Welcome to Two Girls, One Podcast, a show created every week by 100% free-range organic human intelligence, which surely limits its quality. On this episode, what's the deal with art? And how can we make everyone more upset about it? And now, here are your hosts, whose sip-and-paint masterpieces will be available at auction at reasonable reserves. Allison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford. Yo, yo, what's up, y'all? It's Allie. And this is Lindsay, and we are the two girls on this one podcast. Welcome. Yeah. What was what was the name that I decided to give our listeners? Boogers and Butts? I did not approve. I did not approve. <laughs> so It's so funny because I actually can't remember it ever, but I think it is Boogers and Butts. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, you um, know, let us know in the Discord if you hate I it. I encourage you forgetting that, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe our listeners can... Uh, put forward their own idea of what we could be calling them, you know? Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. No, I'm down with that. You know, a lot of podcasts give a name to the listeners based on the name of the podcast. So I think our name would be like girlies, but then we'd be misgendering a lot of people mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. listen. But but maybe it's not even a gender. It's just the word. That's just the word. That's just what it is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Maybe. Yeah, I do use girl gender indiscriminately. Like, yeah, girl. Yeah, gender I do too. indiscriminately. <laughs> I do too. Or girl, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> if you're being ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have a doozy of an episode. We've got two guests, so we're gonna dive right in and tell you about it. Yeah. You may have seen. I mean, by the time this comes out, it's about a month later. But you may have seen that the Colorado State Fair, their annual art competition, someone won using AI-generated art. And the uh, a, at least a corner of the internet went a little bananas about this. And it was covered many, many places. But we were sort of interested in going a slightly different direction, not just that this happened and what does this mean for artists, but what's going on with this particular field of AI? What are the implications that people aren't really talking about? And so we're really excited to have two different guests join us today to talk about this phenomenon. On this podcast, we've looked at deepfakes and other AI-generated art and its implications for all of us. Uh, Lindsay and I are being replaced soon. Speak for yourself. I'll fight to the Ah! death. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we're just going to look at what this means for all of us. I think with all of these technologies, there's the thing we expect and hope for, and then there's what actually happens. So that's what we're going to dive into today. And the communities. Like tons of people are forming around the Dali and Midjourney and and all these tools. Uh, right, and just tools. to be clear, yeah, those are the tools where they. So this guy used Midjourney to create this okay. AI generated art. Mm-hmm. Mm. He wrote in his application, you know, Jason M. Allen via Midjourney. So he disclosed it, but then there's like, well, did people really know what Midjourney was? Although the 
committees on the record that if they had known more, they still would have chosen him. I mean, we should say it's the digital art category. So Mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. the question of whether it should be its own category or is it replacing artists or is it a new form of art? And anyway, so we'll dive into that. Nice. Here we go, friends. I mean, I'm I'm ready. We got to get started because we have two really fun and interesting and exciting guests. And Matt, you brought some cool trivia for us, oh, right? Oh, yeah, I surely mm-hmm. did. Get ready. Yeah, 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 yeah. Y'all like art, right? Into it. I love art. Today we are talking about strange, new, and innovative things in the art world, as Ali just laid out, what their value is, etc. I'm going to share three technology-based pieces of art that sold at auctions for ridiculous sums of money. Uh Only one of these is a real art piece that sold for millions of dollars. The other two I made up. So you are looking for the real art auction among these three choices. Are you prepared? Mm -hmm. Ready. I'm ready. Is it A, an 11-year-old laptop running Windows XP, which was infected with six different types of malware, including the infamous I Love You virus and the WannaCry ransomware, some of the most dangerous malware of recent years. Uh, This laptop is so dangerous that the auction house had to disable its ports and internet capabilities before it was sold. An anonymous bidder purchased it for $1.3 million in 2019. That is A, (laughs) a very dangerous laptop. Yikes. Okay. That sounds like a scary movie plot. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? Yeah. If it's fake, I will will sell it. Did he just say it's pretty good, like he was really proud of himself or? Yeah. Totally was proud of himself, but you know, Matt likes to play mind tricks, so he might be saying that about the real one. I mean, I mean, choice B, is it B? One terminal keyboard for a Burroughs B5500 mainframe computer mounted on a white canvas. This was auctioned off in 2012 by Reed College in Portland, Oregon to raise funds for its tuition coffers. An anonymous bidder from Silicon Valley paid $1.7 million for this piece. Why, do you ask? You, you could you could ask why. Why? Why? Because it was most likely the terminal that Steve Jobs messed around with when he was a student there in 1972 before dropping out after one semester. That is choice B, the terminal keyboard used by Steve Jobs. Wow. Or is it C? The Nintendo phone was a smartphone prototyped using the Japanese video game company's proprietary operating system designed in 2011. It was intended to work with mobile carriers for calls, texting, and web browsing, but also built to play forthcoming Nintendo games in an app store experience. Now, this was never released to the public. There were like schematics and software that was circulating among the company, but only one working prototype was ever created. After a flood at Nintendo's Kyoto offices, many computers and documents were displaced, including the Nintendo phone prototype. Plans for the phone were abandoned because Apple and BlackBerry were taking over the market at the time, but the single prototype conveniently resurfaced at Sotheby's auction house in New York. A prominent Swedish pixel artist named Junk Boy had incorporated the phone into a new a new mural which depicted Super Mario and Sonic the Hedgehog touching fingers like uh, the, the Sistine Chapel. Uh, this piece of art skyrocketed in value because it incorporated the singular prototype of the unreleased Nintendo phone. An anonymous bidder purchased the entire piece for $2.3 million. The only Nintendo phone in the world 
That is choice C. Which of these is real? And which did I make up? Oh my god. That is very good. I have no idea. I'm gonna go with C is the real one. Okay. But it's probably B because people are freaking obsessed with Steve Jobs. <laughs> Just um, to spice shit up, baby A is gonna randomly go with A. All right. <laughs> the random choice. Uh, we will find out which of these art pieces is real after this important break. Well, friends, this podcast would not be as good without the help of the people who support us on Patreon at the $10 or more level. Those people are Wesley Cordell, Jerry Duran, Jessica Fox, Kathy Phillips, Matthew Scott, Melissa Elliott, William, Jessica Kybell, Ken M, and Kelsey Murray. Thank you all so much for everything you do to help us do this. If you would like to hear your name said on air, just like these fine people have just had their names said, please consider donating to our Patreon at the $10 or more level. You don't have to donate $10. You could donate $1. You could donate $30. Whatever you want, we'll take it. Thank you. And now a real advertisement entitled, Need Girl to Please Teach Me How to Kiss. M4W from the website where at least they say please craigslist.org As seen on TV I'm a 20 year old Georgia Tech student who has never kissed I have been going out with a girl online for the last five years and she's finally coming down to see me on the 11th she tells me it's a big turnoff if a guy doesn't know how to kiss, and she even dumped her last boyfriend because of this. I want to make a good first impression, but I've never kissed before. Please, I need a girl to practice kissing with, nothing else. Just kissing lesson, nothing more, nothing less. Some have asked if I have terrible oral hygiene or something of that sort. So I included a picture of me showing my teeth. I'm pretty normal overall. We'll send more pics on requests. Email me. Wow. Uh, maybe it's something about people from Georgia because... I remember when I was in my late teens and had still never kissed anyone, I was considering asking my friends to give me kissing lessons. Hmm. My hot dude friends, obviously. <laughs> I was never considering the ugly ones. <laughs> <laughs> Uglies need not apply. You included that in your in your uh, job listing. No, I actually didn't have any ugly friends. So oh, Because wow. when you <laughs> love someone, they're beautiful. Ah. Oh, she turned it around. It was bad, then it was good. Bad again, then good. <laughs> Nice. Nice. <laughs> All right. Let's hear this trivia. Oh. Which of these is a real piece of art, quote unquote? And which of these are just a real piece of work like yeah. Matt himself? Oh. oh. Was it A, uh, an 11-year-old laptop with the worst malware of all time on it, uh, sold for $1.3 million? Uh, Allie chose A for no reason, but Correct. randomness. <laughs> uh, that was her decision. Absolutely none. Nobody chose B, a, uh, a mainframe terminal keyboard 
from 1972 that Steve Jobs may have touched. That is choice B. Oh my God. Uh, uh, Lindsay, whatever your name is, chose <gasps> <Rude>? C. So- <laughs> <laughs> shows the Nintendo phone a singular prototype that was never released but surfaced in uh, uh, another piece of art at Sotheby's for $2.3 million. That feels too good to be true. You okay. tricked me. It's mm-hmm. fine. Right, well, you can change You can Mm-mm. if you've given it some thought. Don't ever no. change. I'm just letting it be known on the record that it, I think it's B, but I'm sticking with C. Okay. It's just a fascinating <laughs> strategy. The thing I think is true, not going to pick it. <laughs> the correct answer is... A, it is the malware laptop. Allie gets it right. Let's just analyze your strategy. Allie, random. Lindsay, (laughs) definitely this one, not going to pick it. You know, Matt, we're just having fun, okay? I feel you. We're just living our best lives. Good job, baby A. Thank you so much. Good job, baby A. She gets it right. The Persistence of Chaos was a Samsung laptop filled with, like, stuff that takes down governments. (laughs) Like, this is some fucked up malware and shit. And uh, sold for 1.3 million. But the, the auction house was like, you can't have this until we like air gap it from the internet. Like this is not safe to be out in the world. So uh, I found that fascinating. That's how I'm described as well. <laughs> <laughs> but this seriously is like the premise of most object oriented horror movies. Okay. It's like we locked this thing up, but somehow didn't let everyone know not to open it. Right. And now the Sanderson sisters are back. Right. It's a, it's Pandora's mm. box. It's an object of power. It must be sealed away for forever until the next generation opens yeah. it up again and ruins How and destroys fair. the world. Yeah. It's great. Oh my gosh. Well, we have a lot to dive into today. And I think our first guest is here. All right, listeners, it is time to welcome our guest. He is the CEO of 330.ai. He is a journalist and an entrepreneur. Strong emphasis on the entrepreneur at this moment. Everybody welcome Adam B. Levine. Hey, how you doing? I'm very well. Pretty good. That's good. Okay, I know you have been on the show before, but since this is my first time with you, did you add the B after other Adam Levine got really famous? <laughs> so my first run in with the other Adam B. Levine was we, we actually grew up about three hours apart from each other. Wow. I found out because huh. they got us confused before he became famous at the library. And I got blamed <laughs> for one of his books. He's a couple years older than me. It wasn't a book I was into. Yeah, What was, no. the, what was the book? Yeah. I don't even remember. I don't remember. I was like seven or something. <laughs> it's probably a Michael Crichton. I don't know. I love but, uh, it. Oh, that's good. That's I, good. I love that you owe like $400 in late fees for for Maroon 5's uh, library book. Please continue. Damn you, other Adam Levine. <laughs> Why don't we talk about AI art? Yeah. It's sort of happening right now. We're in the beginning of it. We are. Can you sort of put in context what it is and how it relates to, you know, traditional art that we understand and go to museums to see? Yeah, so the the sort of technical term for all of this stuff is AI media synthesis. And what that basically means is that you've got an artificial intelligence program. And artificial intelligence is a really broad term. But this is a specific type, one of a bunch of different technologies that can create new types of media. And so right now, we're typically seeing that sort of in the realm of artwork, in terms of physical artwork. The space is moving, as you said, uh, Really, really, really fast. I come from the world of cryptocurrency. I got into sort of the world of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency journalism uh, back in 2011. And I kind of made a, a little bit of a pivot from that about a year and a half ago to focus in large part on this. 
and then wound up starting a company. Honestly, great time to pivot <laughs> from that train wreck. I, I mean, again, like, <laughs> it's what's interesting to me about it is that they're both disruptive technologies. And I'm really attracted to disruptive technologies because what that means is that you've got over here is the way that things are going. And then over here is this new thing that changes everything. When you get a new thing that changes everything, what it requires you to do is it requires you to kind of look back at all of these decisions that you've made in the past where you're like, oh, we can't do that because that's impossible. But now this new disruptive thing means that we have to, we, we actually can do that, right? We can reassess this and we find that, oh my God, things have changed so much that this thing that was impossible is now possible. And for me, again, technology is all about giving people better options. And it's not about saying, hey, this is the new way things are. It's about saying, hey, this is a new tool that you can use to do things that you might not have been able to do kind of in the old paradigm. So so that's kind of like high level how I think about technology and disruption. And that's kind of the way in which cryptocurrency and AI art are similar, but they're at really different parts of their life right now. When I first kind of discovered AI artwork about a year and a half ago, it was through this Discord bot that, uh, you know, a developer who would become a good friend of mine who I actually hired, uh, who went by Bone Amputee, created that uh, that allowed for him. <laughs> yeah, that's a great name. <laughs> it's a great name. It's a great name. His real name is Phil. Hi, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyways, he created this bot in this research server that was just like experimenting with all this stuff. And AI artwork actually isn't new. It's actually really old. You can go back to the 1970s and you can kind of see the first types of algorithmic stuff. But over the last five or 10 years, there's been a really big kind of growing movement around it as, as AI has gotten better and better and better about understanding really what word concepts, what language concepts on the one hand connect with imagery concepts on the other hand. And so before that, if you wanted to do something with AI, you basically had to write an algorithm or, you know, do some fancy math or just, you know, kind of throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and kind of see what came back good out of the 10,000 things that you created. And what, <laughs> what kind of this new approach really brought back in is it allowed for people to just use words. And the AI doesn't understand words in the same way that we do, but it's close enough that that's really all you need. And that's so powerful. If you think about it, it's a form of magic, right? Like the ability to kind of envision this thing, to figure out, you know, how do I say these words and then say these words and then bring something into existence that didn't exist before in a way that nobody's ever seen before. So to me, again, like a year and a half ago, this stuff was terrible, to be clear. <laughs> like we, we would put in things like, uh, you know, like pop art of Vitalik Buterin, right? And it would be like, oh, hey, in this mishmash image, I can see kind of his forehead sticking through. And it's like, oh my God, that forehead is so Vitalik. <laughs> Uh, Vitalik, the uh, the founder of Ethereum. I, I love creating art about him. It's a total passion of mine. Um, oh my goodness. So uh, it's it's just fun. He's well represented enough on the internet. And so like that was kind of where we were when I when I when I was looking at this stuff first. And I had this kind of epiphany moment after getting totally addicted to, you know, creating terrible images every five minutes or so in this Discord. The kind of epiphany that I had was that Although this stuff is terrible today, in five years, you know, you're going to see somebody standing on stage uh, speaking into a microphone and they're going to be describing a movie. Right. And as they're describing the movie, a video of the movie, an actual, you know, the movie itself is being sort of created dynamically and then displayed on the screen behind them with complete soundtrack and music and dialogue. And again, like it's on the one hand, a complete reinvention and a brand new way to do a performance art, really, um, where you just don't have to do all of the prep. All you have to do is be able to articulate the thing that you want to bring into existence. And then on the other hand, that's a completely revolutionary moment for something like how do you create movies, right? If you no longer need necessarily to do things in the old way, that doesn't mean you can't do things in the old way. 
but it means that you now have this incredible tool that will allow you to, if you're just a person who just has these ideas, but you can bring this technology to bear, well, there's nothing that stops anyone from being a filmmaker. And again, like yeah. that, that's the future. It's not today, but, but that's where this is going. And it's going to get there way faster than people think. Yikes. I know it's scary, but also kind of, no, I see why it's exciting, but also why it's, I feel like the old person who feels threatened by the new thing, right? It's kind of like, well, I've never been able to confidently paint something beautiful. But of course, if I can just type in like bird, sunlight, leaf, and it turns into this gorgeous painting, I'm going to get addicted to that. And then I'll be like, I made this. Yep. Like, And, I, you know, I, I feel both fear, but also it's kind of like, I don't know, YouTube and web series and suddenly exactly. anyone could do that. So it's mm-hmm. just like another mm-hmm. form. But can we take it a step back? Because for our listeners who don't know what the fuck AI art is, <laughs> and it encompasses a lot of things. Like we um, interviewed one of the founders of Botnik a long time ago. And so Botnik, you know, the the AI, whatever it is, I guess, reads a bunch of TV guides and then wrote its own TV guide or yeah. read a bunch of Seinfeld scripts and wrote its own Seinfeld script. <laughs> so how does AI art work? It's, it's kind of all the same thing. Yeah. I uh-huh. mean, like it's, it's when you're talking about media synthesis, like you're talking about right now, primarily the ways that we're seeing this is text and images. There's uh, video is going to be kind of the next big jump and music is a little bit further behind because it uses a sort of different data set, right, than all the visual stuff that we're talking about. But the really simple way to think about AI synthesis or media synthesis, it's kind of like a really fancy version of autocorrect on your phone, right? So if we take this from the text side, then, you know, you're writing something and, you know, like you start writing a word and, you know, your phone will be like, hey, do you do you think that, you know, I, I think this is what you mean to type. Do you actually want to continue typing or is, are we just good? Can we go? And so like, that's kind of what autocorrect is on your phone. Autocorrect for something like GPT three or kind of text synthesis is, Oh, Hey, I see that you're writing, you know, this paragraph, how are these next three sentences? How is that what you meant? Uh, and so it's trying to predict what it is that is going to come next. And the nice part about it on the tech side, that's actually how I kind of got into media synthesis is I really like to write and I I would love to write fiction, but I find that I have a hard time being creative enough, you know, to not get writer's block a lot. And so what was really cool about kind of the early text AI stuff, and this is more true today than it was a couple of years ago when I was doing this, is that you never have writer's block. Writer's block becomes entirely a thing of the past because you can just click a button and then have another three sentences be written. And if you like those three sentences or you like five words in that and it gives you an idea, then that's great. And if you don't, then you're like, eh, meh, you know, (laughs) you throw it away, you click the button again and it does it again. And you can do that a thousand times and each time you'll get, you know, a different result. And so it becomes almost impossible to kind of get stuck. So that's the text side. On the image side, it's kind of the same thing, honestly. It's that you're telling the AI, hey, I'm creating this image that is of a field of sunflowers with a vibrant, surreal, you know, background and Elon Musk wearing a top hat with a mustache standing there like Willy Wonka. And the AI is like, oh, that's what he's creating. So let me autocorrect, right? Let me try and fill in the blanks because I've, I have the text now, but what does that look like, right? And so, so that's what you're doing with it. You're basically, again, all of this stuff is just a really fancy version of autocorrect 
that will try and complete your thought for you. And the technology is getting so good that again, like what we're talking about now is like that, that image I described, like we could make that for your, for your album art <laughs> in like five seconds. And like, that's kind of the reality of it is that as creative as you want to be, you can now be that you just have to figure out what you want, which is again, as kind of, uh, you know, you've pointed out is in some ways really empowering and in other ways is pretty scary because it's really different than the way that things work today. Yeah. Your, your description of sort of generating options and then choosing the option that you like as the creator to keep making the thing instantly made me think of abstract art. Like when Jackson Pollock, and I'm not an art guy, but I'm just assuming Jackson Pollock threw a bunch of splotches out of paint at a canvas. And a lot of people probably said, this is stupid. He's just throwing paint at a canvas. And what I imagine art, you know, smart people would say is like, well, yes, he was doing that, but he knew when to stop and he knew when to add and he tried a thing and then shifted to another thing. So he's still creating, but the randomness of the splotches are coming from, I don't know, actions that are not quite in his control. And this sounds like a digital abstraction of that. Does that analogy make any sense to what this is? I, I mean, it, it makes some sense, but I don't know if that's necessarily it, Matt. Um, okay. So w when I think about this stuff... So the difference here is that when you're talking about Jackson Pollock doing that, it took him time, right? Yeah. He not only had to think about it, but he had to do it. And also he was trained in a traditional yeah, art style. Yeah, that's a good point. So, exactly. So he had a lot of knowledge about kind of what the mm -hmm. right thing to do is. So like that's that type of style as far as somebody who really knows what they're doing and can really manifest that, you know, like that's always going to be valuable. And the reason why, again, like why paintings are valuable in general, why some paintings are really valuable and some paintings aren't is a lot less about the art and it's a lot more about the narrative of the thing, right? So it's not necessarily what is created, it's who created, what's the context in which they created. That's why anything is really valuable, you know, when yeah, you're talking true. about on, on the artistic side of things, right? The interesting part about all of this is in order to really properly use these types of technologies, you have to give up a lot of the control. And I think that's where you're correct, is that the randomness that sort of comes with that, which in the case of Jackson Pollock is defined both by his actions and also by the fundamentals of gravity, right? Yes. And kind of all of these other just like physical realities. Some things in his control, he chose orange, but he does not control gravity. So right. let's see what happens. Right, exactly. Like there's a, there's a degree of sort of chaos in that. And that chaos is kind of beautiful because a lot of times the thing that you don't do intentionally, but you do incidentally, winds up being what the art is, right? And like, there's your intention over here and then there's what's reality over here. So when you're talking about AI artwork, the challenge is a lot less, like you no longer have to move the paintbrush. This is a new type of paintbrush. And the, the, the other major difference, which is actually really new, like if we were talking about this a month and a half ago, I would be telling you, yeah, it takes us about three and a half minutes to generate like a really amazing piece of artwork. And now <laughs> that number is five seconds. That number is only five seconds if you're constrained in terms of how much hardware you have. When I create 25 images, I tend to create those in about 20 seconds for all of them because I have like a bunch of hardware in the background that's kind of processing this stuff. And right now this uses very expensive GPUs, but those kind of barriers are coming down really, really quickly because as the technology is improving, we're actually seeing the requirements to, to run it go down, which is again, not what you would typically expect except in a disruptive technology. In a disruptive technology, all of the typical rules sort of start to break and, and you can just like see these, these incredible improvements. So uh, with the introduction of a, a technology called stable diffusion, um, which I won't go into the, into kind of the technicals of how it works, but it's in some ways simpler and in, in other ways more complex. And it gives you 
a 30 times increase in in speed, a 30 times decrease in cost. And this already was not an expensive thing to do on a per image basis. And about a 400%, I would say, increase in terms of quality. And this is one single kind of innovation where since I started this project a little bit more than a year ago, we've seen probably three or four of these sorts of jumps. This is the biggest one for sure. But like the space is, again, just moving so fast. It's I could show you stuff we did a year ago versus stuff we're doing today. And you'd be like, well, this over here is a giant piece of garbage. And this over here is something I want to put on my wall, right? Like that's an incredibly fast pace of improvement. And I think it's actually going to speed up from here. Well, what seems like it would be the biggest sort of like communities that would be most interested in this are like fan communities, like, you know, fan fiction of making, you know, Harry Potter and it's funny I don't know, that. Eric <laughs> from the little mermaid hang out together or something. Yeah. yeah. You know? Just off the top of your head. You're just, just pulling two characters that you definitely have not written about. in the past. <laughs> just, just saying that. Yeah. Where are you seeing this technology being used the most? And how do you envision it will be, you know, monetized first? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So um, it's a good question. Uh, the example you bring up is funny because I have a story to tell you about that. Uh, <laughs> See, so, I knew it. I knew it. So, so okay. So um, in terms of where is it being used the most right now, right now, this is a novelty to 99.9% .9 of people who are out there using it. It's just fun. Again, that's one of the reasons why I was really interested in this is because you know, you spend a lot of time in cryptocurrency. And for me, again, it, like I'm not a cryptocurrency investor type. I'm a cryptocurrency philosophy type, uh, where again, it's about decentralization as a way to sort of diminish the power that a lot of really, you know, authoritarian systems in our lives have over us and kind of take back some of that control. But, but in order to kind of explain that to people, they have to understand how money works. And in order for them to understand how money works, you basically have to educate them on how money works because nobody knows unless you're like a nerd like me. Uh, so, so like, the art thing is great because you don't have to explain to people how art works. Everybody knows how art works. Hey, I see this thing. I like this thing. That's cool. Hey, can I put this on my wall? You know, like, can I make this myself? Like the questions are really, really easy and fun. And so to you right now, people are enamored with the idea that I'm a person who thinks of myself as artistic, but has no artistic skills. And also, by the way, I have no time or money. So can I make art, <laughs> you know, that's as good as something that someone who is classically trained? And the answer to that is pretty much yes. And that will be more true as time goes on. So it becomes a lot more about like, well, what kind of art did you want to create? What is the context into which this fits? Who are you? You know, is this a thing that you're just doing as a one-off so you can post it on Facebook? Or are you going to try and go and create a career as an artist doing this? Those are sort of all the questions that kind of the current path that we see today leads to. But I think your, your other question is kind of more important, which is where is this going? And the answer is everywhere. The answer is literally everywhere. <laughs> there are so like, this is what is called a blue ocean opportunity. And there's this thing, blue ocean, red ocean, right? A red ocean is a competitive environment where it's red because there's blood, right? Because in order to grow, you have to eat somebody else, basically. Oh my God. A blue ocean is one where there's just opportunity. And that's where we are today is that you know, the market that has recognized itself and is starting to grow is the one that's like, hey, I can create art. This is cool. I'm going to post it on Facebook. And the art and the sort of community that will come and the opportunities that will come are literally every business in the possible world that has any sort of use for anything in terms of media will be using these types of things to create a lot of that. And they won't necessarily be scaling back in terms of the number of people who they employ to do that. They will be increasing their throughput significantly. They will be increasing their productivity. So I like to think of these technologies, although it's not the commonly used term, as AI amplified productivity or AI amplified creativity. 
specific example of that, here's a here's a business idea for somebody. Uh, you can take there's there's an entire industry that's out there right now of people who create search engine optimization content to help your blog or your website, uh, you know, do better in Google's search algorithm. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that Google ranks uh, your site is based on, are you posting original images? Are those images something that we've seen elsewhere before? Whoever posts the image first is the one that gets the credit for it for the search engine optimization. And so there's this entire industry of sort of low paid workers who, you know, who take images and then change them the minimum of 20%, which then allows you know, a blog to post it. And they typically are pretty bad because that's not the point. The point is for the search engine optimization. So it's a poorly paying job that most people don't actually <laughs> want to do that doesn't perform a really useful function and actually in a lot of ways clutters up the internet that you can essentially entirely replace with this type of thing where now that same person who would be modifying these manually is creating original imagery. And that imagery goes into the same purpose, but it doesn't look terrible because the, the, the sort of trade-off of creating bad art versus good art, well, there's no difference. Like you just have to specify what kind of art you're creating. And now you don't need to do that derivative product. So like that's one idea of many, 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 many. And it's it's hard to fathom where this is going to go because it's disruptive. And so we don't yet know. But again, like another one is like a post-traumatic stress, uh, you know, uh, syndrome patients uh, as a visualization tool, right? Or people who are depressed. Uh, again, just the ability to, well, there's so much stuff in our life that's outside of our control, right? Uh, so it's really empowering to be able to take something and then just do it and try to manifest something. And with this, it just makes you feel good. So like, I, I love it for all of those reasons. And I think that in the end, it's going to be important in almost every type of production flow that has anything to do with media. And again, not displacing yeah. people, but amplifying them, making the quality better. Well, I'd love to pivot here because the reason we, we really reached out to you is because someone won an entire art fair using AI-generated art. Yep. And the internet went nuts over this. The New York Times has written about it. But something that does seem to get a little bit lost is that it was the digital art category. Uh, <laughs> my personal opinion is there just needs to be a new category, AI yeah. art. And they talked to the panel and the people who run this art fair, I think it was the Colorado State Art Fair. And they said that if they had fully known that it was AI generated, he would still have won. So people are kind of glossing over that fact and being like, ah, he's replacing artists, blah, blah, blah. And he didn't fully disclose that it was AI art, but he's, he like somewhat disclosed it. He was like, this art is by me via, and then like wrote the name of the technology. But of course, no yeah. one's heard of that technology. So Really, I mean, what do you what do you think about the idea of AI art winning art competitions? I mean, is it as simple as there should be a new category or should we just accept this disruption the way we have, you know, anyone can make a video now? What do you think? I th I think that at first what you could do is you could be like, here's the AI art category, but I think that within 5 years we'll see that flip and it'll be AI art is the expected default. And then here you have the the premium categories, right? Which are, this is the one that was really painted by someone. Mm. This is the one, you know, these are the photographs that were really taken by someone. And I think that that's kind of where all this winds up going. I do think that it's really important to, you know, compare apples to apples. And in a contest setting, this is a huge advantage. So you're really going to get one of two outcomes. Either you're, you separate it out in one of the two ways that I described, or you just assume that AI artwork is probably going to subsume, you know, most uh, uh, most artwork in these. Just because it's it's not even necessarily that the quality is better; it's that you have so much choice. 
It's that if it takes you six hours to paint a painting, which would be a pretty quick painting, honestly, for something that's high quality. <laughs> it's Van Gogh level of speed. Exactly. Well, yeah. And, and in that same six hours, you can generate, you know, 6,000 images, <laughs> uh, all of which are equivalent to the resulting painting that this person would make. But you then get to look through them and pick the very, 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 very best one. Well, that's kind of an unfair advantage. So I think that from a competition standpoint, it's important for that. But I think that the kind of the flip side of, the, of that is that it means that we'll see more original artwork in more contexts to the point where, again, like I'm thinking of all these commercial use cases, right? So like just imagine, you know, that like every, you know, banner that you see or every, you know, display advertisement that you see is uh, a unique piece of artwork that's been created just for you that completely matches all of your tastes. And where now, instead of being surrounded by garish nonsense that somebody created, you know, thinking that, hey, maybe you'll click on it, you still, they still want you to click on it, but you've, you're surrounded by kind of a form of beauty that's been being tailored to you dynamically at almost no cost to sort of the advertiser. That's better for you. That's better for the advertiser. You know, I still, I, I probably still wouldn't wind up clicking on really any of the ads, but I still think that it's, it's an improvement relative to the status quo, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it, is going to be an obvious place where you will start comparing it to itself and not to, yeah. you know, trained people. You know, everyone was like, oh, if we just start letting people make their own movies on YouTube, then exactly. what's going to stop them? And it's like, well, now there's the Webbies and it's not in competition with the Oscars. Right. And it's fine. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't give Oscars to YouTube channels. Yeah. Right. But that's, that's the dilemma that Yet. everyone's upset about, right? Is that totally. this artist won a quote-unquote normal art fair like he did win the oscar right right but it wasn't the oscar i mean right, right. I, it's like saying they got bought at tribeca like this web series got bought at tribeca over another movie yeah. and now they have their own category that's how it starts maybe we shouldn't give awards for art maybe we should just enjoy the art what do you think of that? Well, no, Matt, you're you're trying to make a blue ocean in the red <laughs> ocean. We live in a capitalist society, and if you want artists to eat, sell it, make the make all the money you want, but don't no awards. Nobody will know about it unless it gets an award. There's yeah. there's there's nothing wrong with awards. It's okay. There's, there's nothing wrong with contests. We should want that. We want people to compete with each other, and we want them to be better, right? It, competition kind of allows everyone to sort of up their game. That's the point of it. So, so I don't think there's any problem with that. Again, to the, to the point, I think the problem is the mixing of the two things, right? Especially now, because again, like if we were talking about this, you know, like two months ago, then I think it would be hard for, you know, AI artwork to win something in kind of the real world. But I think that, again, just the reality of kind of the most recent set of upgrades and the ones that will come after that make it such that it's a little unfair to traditional artists. So you just have to be like, this is traditional art. This is AI, AI powered art. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the future, maybe we'll just say this is traditional art and this is just art and we won't call it AI art because that'll be assumed. But that we're still a good ways away from that. Yeah. So uh, what are the other types of things that are currently being created by AI. So we know about scripts and then paintings. I know you said music is further off. People are doing it. It's just not very good, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like all, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, 1990s MIDI type stuff. Um, at the moment, because most of these things have been trained off of off of like uh, MIDI. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll we'll get there with the music. Um, I mean, that's that's pretty much where we are right now. Is every, it's everything visual at the moment? The visual sort of the the kind of moment was about a year. Uh, it was a year and a half ago with the introduction of this thing called Clip, which was this library piece of open source software that, on the one hand, 
understood imagery concepts and on the other hand, understood language concepts. And most importantly, it understood the relationship between them. So a lot of people think when they look at this stuff that, oh, hey, this must be like searching Google and then like gluing together different pieces. It's not that at all. What's actually happening is that these models, these these AIs have a statistical understanding, right? So they understand sort of the the numbers, the the kind of uh, topographical map, so to speak, of kind of how these different things relate to each other. And so when you're using words to create with this, what you're effectively doing, what you can visualize here is imagine a spider web, right? The spider web is attached at different points to sort of anchors, right? And those anchors then provide tension. And in the middle, the spider web is, you know, the product of all of those different points that it's attached to. Okay. So now take that same image, replace the anchor points with different words where those different words have different sorts of imagery kind of concepts associated with them. And the spider web is replaced by the image that you wind up creating in the middle. And that's kind of the, the way to think about it. So there's this tension that's created by these different words. And then the resulting sort of combination of those things, plus some randomness, uh, creates sort of the unique piece of, of artwork or the unique spider web that is in the middle. So that, that if you want to kind of understand a deeper th uh, way of thinking about how it works, that's really what you're doing. So the skill then becomes figuring out what anchor points do you need to create the thing that you want? You know, what are the words that if I put those there in just this right order are going to generate sort of the thing that I want? And that's hard to do right now, honestly. Like it still really requires not thinking like a person, but thinking like, you know, like an AI. If you uh, go looking for this stuff, you'll find people who are pretty good with it, who basically like jam kind of like a word salad of different like key trigger words that are super powerful in the stuff in order to generate particular styles. So a lot of what I've spent the last year doing really is building systems that make it so that people who don't know how to use this stuff can come in and they can be like a bear wearing sunglasses, right? And they pick a style, something like that. So it's like, here's a, a photograph from the 1980s using tintype where if you, if you just typed in bear wearing sunglasses, then it would probably give you something that didn't look as good. Mm. This will pass and you will pretty quickly get to the point where the AI, if it doesn't understand itself, then there are there's software in the middle that is sort of translating. Here's the human version of how you would say this. And then over here, here's <laughs> the computer version of how you would say this. And the, the person doesn't need to know that language anymore, just mm -hmm. like everything else. It reminds me of Google searching in a way of like you maybe 10 years ago, yeah. you'd have to type in something. If you're searching for something very specific, you'd you'd have to phrase and you still have to do this. You have to phrase your Google search very precisely. And these days you can have misspellings and you can say type the wrong word and Google's like, you probably meant this. So here's the result. You're like, yep, got it. And you and you, you get what you need. Yeah. Sometimes. I, I used to be a really powerful searcher. And these days I just literally ask Google questions in my sure. browser bar. Like sure. that's like the normal way to interact with it. And then again, again, like that's an optimization of the technology that's very foreseeable here. So you're totally right. Like right now, sort of the biggest use cases around this that we see really are people who are trying to mix sort of intellectual property and stuff like that. So I uh, had I had a Twitch streamer come into our Discord where we uh, offer free, um, like people can just like go in and use the, the bots for free to create stuff. And he was just like obsessed with getting... Emma Watson as Doctor Who. <laughs> you really oh. wanted Emma Watson as Doctor Who. And so we have uh -huh. about like cool. 60 different styles in there that, that people can kind of pick from to, to create. 
And he's, re- he's just like grinding through every single one of these. And so I, I go into one of the channels and I'm like, what the hell is all this Emma Watson stuff that's in here? <laughs> <laughs> so we eventually were able to get it. But the trick was to not say as Doctor Who, which again is like what the normal human type of way to think about this would be. But instead it was Emma Watson holding uh, holding a sonic screwdriver standing in front of the TARDIS. Um. And that was enough that it created the imagery that sort of he wanted. So like that's, again, like that's sort of the challenges of it today. All that stuff's going to be gone in the future. But right now, it's funny to see people who just get like a real uh, idea in their head and just just grind. Yeah. I mean, it's where all the, like all the fantasy casting of things when yeah. new projects get announced, you know. It's it's gonna be oh, rampant. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. No, and it's not just the sort of fan stuff. It's also uh, like concept art. The ability to create concept art. I actually wow. did this for a movie that we're working with. Um, and like the ability to do that is just is just there. It's already oh there. And and I had so much fun being like, what if Harrison Ford was the bad guy? What if Anthony Hopkins was the bad guy? What if Angelina <laughs> Jolie was the bad guy? And eventually, I settled on Miley Cyrus, of course. But um, which is if Harrison Ford and Angelina Jolie were one person? Oh well, yeah, I mean you can do that too, but it's harder. That's you'd, have Miley to, Cyrus. you'd have to work. <laughs> so before you leave us, uh, if listeners wanted to start messing around with this and making their own art, what are the platforms that are out there? So there's a bunch of platforms that are out there right now. Uh, Mid Journey is probably the biggest one. Ah, oh, that's the one he used. Mid Journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mid Journey really kind of started taking off. Um, again, like if you wanted to create with our tools and our presets and stuff like that, you can basically go to discord.gg slash pixelmind. That's the name of one of our platforms. And again, you can come in, you can just create for free. There's a bunch of channels and helpful people in there along with styles. Harry Styles? Of course. (laughs) As Dr. Who. I love creating Sasquatches, by the way. Sasquatches wearing sunglasses is excellent. It's better than Bigfoot. Thank you so much, Adam. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. Always fun to talk about it. Okay, everyone, it is time to welcome our guest. They are a writer, speaker, and musician who have authored several books, and they also established the Artists Plus Machine Intelligence Program at Google AI. Welcome, Kay Alato-McDowell. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. What is this Google program? Can you share all of their secrets? (laughs) I can share... No secrets, but But some public information. I can can share (laughs) obvious things that everybody already knows. Um, Yeah, so the program is called Artisan Machine Intelligence, and we launched in 2016, and we're basically a response to the emergence of something called Deep Dream, which was one of the first generative AI algorithms that was capable of making what you might call art program was initiated because there was this new tool. I was working in AI research and I happened to have an MFA in photography and knew a thing or two about art and volunteered to lead and establish this program. And uh, we've been running for seven years. We give grants to artists and researchers, academics, um, basically people that are pushing forward the field of AI art. And so we've been really engaged in what was formerly a very small community, um, but is increasingly growing larger and more significant. So as you know, we were very interested in the fact that AI art won an art competition. (laughs) One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is 
what are all the things that we're kind of not thinking about? You know, like uh, if you look back to Web 2.0 and Facebook saying we're going to connect the world and nobody knew that like, oh, this wasn't going to be so good. So like, what are all the considerations that people aren't considering? I would say the most important thing that I'm aware of with creative processes that involve AI is that they are very subtle and powerful and can inform your thinking and change your perception in profound ways. Some of these could be good, some of them could be bad, but I think we're in a kind of state of infatuation, or many people are with these new tools because they're super exciting. They enable all kinds of immediate creativity and exploration. You're always engaged in a feedback loop with these tools. You're always kind of learning how to use them. And as you learn how to use them, you adapt your thinking to those tools. So for example, I wrote this book called Pharmaco AI in 2020, and I wrote it with OpenAI's GPT-3 language model. So it's an AI that generates words and you put words in and it completes sentences and completes paragraphs and you can write with it. And what I found in the process was it really expanded what I could think it it enabled me to think new things and I enabled it to generate different kinds of writing and ideas. And it was a very powerful amplifier of thinking, but it also in some sense has its own agenda. I mean, I don't want to personify it too much, but it has a bias. It has a training corpus and to use it effectively, you have to be able to be aware of that as you're using it. And because language is so close to the mind, because images are so close to the imagination, when you use these tools, you're imbibing their uh, essence, so to speak, right? You're learning from them. And that is something I think maybe we're not quite aware of because we not many people have been immersed in these tools for a very long time. They're coming out so quickly. The revolutions are happening so fast. Can you give us some examples when you say like we're learning from them? Well, for example, if you were to use a tool like Dolly 2 or Midjourney or Stable Diffusion, one of these text-to-image generative tools, you give it a text prompt, you type in some words, and then it will generate an image. And as you try to get the image to be more like what you're imagining, you change the words that you use and you start to learn the language of the tool. So you might find that denoting a specific rendering style, right? Saying claymation 1970s will give you a certain look or saying 3D render will give you a certain look. Those are simple examples of how you need to start changing your descriptions in order to match the vocabulary of the tool. And those are really obvious ones that maybe don't seem so subtle, but once you start to spend a lot of time with these tools, the way that you think about images and describe them becomes more conformant to the language of that tool because you need it to be in order to use the tool well. But also this is something that affects your own imagination and you're, you're thinking in these text image pairs, you're seeing what comes out and you're conditioning your imagination to work with the images that you receive from it. So similar to how, sorry to interrupt, but it's similar to how maybe our brain starts to think in memes. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I think memes are a really good example because people will start to talk and say like galaxy brain moment or like, <laughs> you know, goes to Burning Man once or something like they say these things. and then We all know what they mean. And it's a shorthand, which is great, but also, you know, it may be reducing our vocabulary. It may be expanding our vocabulary. And that depends really a lot on us. Or tribalizing it too, of like you and I know what we're talking about, but uh, my next door neighbor has no fucking clue what language I'm speaking. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm also wondering because you yourself are an artist and I know that a lot of artists are nervous, hesitant, trepidatious about the idea of there being 
a large presence of AI art suddenly flooding the market or the the scene. How do you think about this and how do you think that artists should be really thinking about this? Yeah, the, there are a number of considerations. Um, I mean, the economic one is really an obvious thing to point to, and it's very clear that there's going to be an impact already. If you want to make a slide deck, you could probably generate all the images you need for it rather than, say, hiring an artist or using licensable art materials. So there's certainly considerations there for illustration, and I think those are important. There's always been technological changes with art. Like I studied photography and the relationship that photography has to painting and realistic representation obviously was very disruptive, but it also enabled painting to do different things and for photography to come into its own as an art form. So there's going to be an evolutionary process there. Another consideration is really the aesthetic impact that it has. And I mean, this is what I'm feeling more than anything is the psychological impact of it, the aesthetic, the way that, or of the, of the process of using the tool, the way that sometimes it can actually be depressing when you see how much comes out of it and um, maybe the ways that it does limit what is possible. You know, it kind of makes a lot of things possible, but then they're all kind of within one aesthetic domain and to really get something that feels fresh out of it, you have to work a little harder. You have to learn how to manipulate it. You know, I've been working a lot with Mid Journey, and at first it seems like, wow, anything's possible. Then after a while, you start noticing these patterns, and you're like, it kind of is starting to all look the same. And going through that process can be a little disheartening. Um, but this happens every time one of these new tools comes out, especially these generative ones. You, there's a very short window in which it feels really fresh, and then it gets kind of cliche. And that's the point where I think it becomes a really interesting artistic medium because you have to transcend all those cliches. Yeah. What are you excited about? about how people are starting to use this, maybe looking ahead just a little bit from where we are, which is kind of very much the beginnings of this. But as we know, technology moves quickly. So I'm sure there's something on the horizon that is going to blow our minds even more than AI art winning <laughs> an art competition. What, what do you think is going to be the next exciting step for this? Oh, that's a really good question. I think moving past the low-hanging fruit, once people stop making, you know, Donald Trump as a Cheeto or whatever the cliche instant surrealism kind of images. I mean, that never gets old for me, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I think seeing it develop, seeing it mature as a field. I don't know what that looks like, but moving beyond the cliches and discovering something that is truly native to that artistic tool is going to be really interesting. And I think there's probably a, a lot of contextualizing work that artists need to do. So they may need to take this tool and put it into a different process. And you may not even be aware that the tool is there anymore. And I think at that point, um, it will enable more creativity and more possibility for artists when we're not so much focused on the specific tool is the art, is the medium, but actually it's one element among many. I think that this is already starting to happen. You're seeing these machine learning based filters in Photoshop and stuff like that. I think we will move to a point and with writing as well, where we stop thinking about the presence of the tool, just like with word processing, we don't say, well, this person is a normal writer. And then this writer uses Microsoft word. It's like everybody uses Microsoft word and nonlinear editing, right? It's a different way of thinking that just got absorbed. And so I think that will happen here as well. Well, I think a caveat with your example is that 
while everyone uses Microsoft Word, there will still be artists who paint. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering in what ways does this, you know, AI generative art compare and contrast to previous developments, right? Like Photoshop or even, you know, Instagram and everyone become, you know, thinking they're a photographer. Like there's been these other tools that have kind of disrupted artistic fields. And I think some people probably did get less work, but other people got more work. And so how do you think it compares and contrasts to other tools that we've already kind of been through? Mm -hmm. That was a lot. I asked you a lot. I was like, (laughs) all the tools that have ever happened, how does it compare and contrast? (laughs) Yeah, well, where to even start? I think there's a fundamental shift in the way that you think with a tool that comes from AI. For example, writing with AI uh, for me has been really about exploring new spaces that open up, having my own language reflected back to me, learning about things I didn't know about that were in the training corpus, or maybe dealing with hallucinated text that isn't real. You know, AI can come up with things that are false and it does all the time. God, I'm sorry. I'm having a really hard time to, to verbalize this. Um, yeah, that's okay. Do you need some AI to help you? That's the worst joke I've ever made. <laughs> well, look, that's a that's a serious issue here, right? Marshall McLuhan says that every augmentation is also an amputation, meaning that any ability we augment, we will also lose as we become reliant on the tool that we create to augment it. Just like Google search, right? I'm so used to being able to, able to find information whenever I need it that I don't actually memorize a lot of mundane information that maybe I should be. Wow, that's a dystopia I hadn't even thought about. We all just become mindless because of AI. (laughs) Thank you for that nightmare. This has been great. Yes, that's, but I think the Google search or the internet in general is, is the right analogy of like, I don't have to remember anything, but also I can write a blog post about 16th century France and have ex, not expertise, but like have a lot of knowledge at my fingertips that's extraordinary. So like I can't paint, but now I can create art. Right. Well, it's the augment augment versus, versus amputate. Yeah, yeah. I've just been putting a presentation together about this idea of latent space and it's this thing that's it's what's inside of the ML models. It's a very high dimensional mathematical space that represents all the information in the training set. And what I think is fundamentally different about this tool is that you're dealing with this high dimensional associative network. So to use a camera it's fairly straightforward to use a word processor. It's a little bit more like that because you're talking about nonlinear thought processes. When you work with AI, you're engaging with a high dimensional mathematical space in which knowledge is represented and it's highly associative and it's very connected. And this is similar to our own brains in certain ways, but also very alien to any tool that we've had before. And so um, this engagement with high dimensionality, I think does change your perception. Another way of talking about it is that these generative tools are, when they're generating, they're hallucinating. This is the technical term that's used to describe it. So a a neural net hallucinates text, it hallucinates images. And so what does it mean to use technical tools that are fundamentally high dimensional and hallucinatory? I think this is the actual deep shift that's inherent in these tools. Wow. That actually makes it sound like cool. (laughs) That's what I I find cool about it. (laughs) That was a lot. You know, that was a lot. I'll be honest. I'm like, not sure how to pitch like these concepts because I'm trying to keep it like bite size and digestible because I know it's going to be short, but like the real interesting shit is like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I love it. No, do it. I'm also just really suddenly fascinated by where the word processor analogy breaks down in the context of what you just said of like, if someone uses a typewriter to write old school, like the words that are coming out on the page are still the same words that are coming out in a word processor. Like you can only mix and match letters so many ways, but this is an imagination <laughs> that is t- that, a tool that is also a synthetic imagination. It's, it's, it doesn't apply to like the way old tools, we could still apply them today. It, it's a new, it's a completely new frontier. So yeah. Yeah. Great. I think a good analogy is an effects pedal for a guitar hmm. for like writing in particular with GPT-3 or any language model, the way that it continues what you've created is a little bit like a delay pedal or something. It's Mm-hmm. kind of echoing, kind of changing, and it's giving you this other voice to play with that can add up to more than the sum of its parts. So basically how Ali was talking about how we couldn't figure out, we couldn't have known beforehand the monster that Facebook would be, like how it's a slave to capitalism and it's ruining politics and all of this stuff. Is there something like that that could happen with AI art? Like obviously it's going to be mind for all the commercial value it can possibly have, which is probably going to be the way that it advances quickly. But are there other ways in which we can't really think about it because we're not, you know, necessarily artists who are driving it, but sort of businesses that will be driving this, this new art form? Well, the ability to generate synthetic media, I think has really obvious implications for just media in general and the ability to verify what's real. The whole fake news problem is essentially an AI problem with social media where you have bots kind of generating trends and generating discourse. Um, So we're already kind of living in a world where synthetic social media is creating confusion. And I can definitely see image making having a similar effect Um, where there's already a new tool from Meta that can generate video. It's obviously not high resolution, but we all kind of know that this is the direction it's going, is to be able to generate fully synthetic video from text descriptions. Um, Audio is being generated as well. There are some very parallel political ramifications or potential social ramifications that have to do with, with that, with the verifiability of truth in media. You know, to speak to some of the other elements of AI, it's high dimensional nature, it's hallucinatory nature. I think being in a feedback loop with an augmented imagination that can synthesize anything and generate anything does different things to the psyche. And we just don't know what that looks like. It could be extremely liberating. It could be, uh, it could be toxic, but I think what we're fundamentally talking about is an augmentation of the imagination, an extension of that imagination and the, the health effects of that no one really knows. I think right now there's a, you know, there's certain types of limitations on what can be created with it. We're already seeing certain words are not allowed as prompts. And so people are trying to deal with some of those effects ahead of time. And, you know, they don't want violent imagery produced with these tools. But I think on a very personal level, what it feels like to use them, does that destabilize your sense of reality to have access to this hallucinatory capacity? I think these things we don't know. When you mentioned um, that we there's certain things we don't want generated, what are the sort of parameters that will be put on AI art to make sure that it's not like kitty porn? Like, what are the things that are going to be like there, there are certain words. I can't think of an example right now, but I know there are certain words that are somewhat innocuous, mm-hmm. but that are not allowed in some tools because of 
what the results might be. There's something called the Clean Common Crawl Corpus, which is a text data set that's used from language models to train language AI. It's basically a word list that of you know banned words, essentially, that if the word appears in a page in the corpus, the page is removed. And so one of the words, for example, is bareback because of uh, maybe what could be obvious associations. But if you apply that to, say, equestrian recreation, uh, riding a horse bareback gets excluded from the, the training set. So there's certain things that it won't know because that data is stricken from the training set. Mm-hmm. There are unintended consequences like that with image systems, like the ones we're talking about. Yeah, people don't want imagery that could harm children. They don't want violent or uh, sexual imagery. And so, you know, even like, like there's no, I don't think you can generate children with Dolly. You can't say naked or nude. At all? No children? No. And so people f- have found workarounds. That's good. What's interesting about that is how much f- famous art has like little naked cupids and babies and everywhere. So Exactly. But that can't happen. In the- interesting. Okay. We're erasing children from the future of art. Honestly, great. Um, no, Honestly, <laughs> they they don't need it. We don't. We don't need We them. need a lot of grown-ups in yeah, art. We're, uh, the world it's is fine. overpopulated. We don't need to spread more imagery of children. It's fine. <laughs> they ruin every painting. <laughs> if you think about what we're talking about, it's totally wild. Like we're saying yeah. like we need to actually figure out what we shouldn't be imagining. <laughs> it's crazy. Right, right, right. Well, that's why there's no children because people are problematic. And by people, I mostly mean adult men. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but like, you know. I don't we, disagree. <laughs> you know, I mean, not to say that, you know, women aren't bad too, just not at the same rate. So that's like what (laughs) that's why we can't have children in our AI art, because people might do something very upsetting with it and we could just prevent that. (laughs) That's fascinating, though, right? That that line you just said about like, what are the things we shouldn't be imagining and that you have to put those parameters in. But, you know, on TikTok, then these other words developed kind of get around it. Right. So Mm -hmm. maybe you can't Mm -hmm. use children, but there's going to be someone out there who's like, person, small, smaller, tiny, you know what I mean? Like they're going to get there because so on TikTok, there's like all these words people say instead of the actual word so that they don't get banned or filtered. This is a great example of entraining to the system. In this case, it's the limitations that are placed on the system, but this is how our language mutates and evolves in concordance with these kind of tools. And they're happening at such a large scale. They're happening at the scale of the internet that yeah, our language does change really quickly and, and it, it's hard to for some people to understand it, like you said, or it's hard for us to understand ourselves from the past and ourselves in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- th- that's the thing is, will people inevitably work around these um, barriers? Well, one of the conversations that I've witnessed is about the questions are, should the systems understand these things? Uh, do the systems need to understand these things in order to function? It, basically, in order to have a, re- a real model of the world, they they do need to potentially understand the darker side of humanity, but they don't necessarily need to enact the darker side of humanity. Mm-hmm. But there's this the, the the idea is for the system to have an accurate representation of reality. Yeah, forget the darker side that that children exist like that should be part of the model if we want to accurately represent the world. Mm-hmm. We were we were in our research we were looking at some other sort of writers and thinkers on this topic and um there was one in particular that was kind of 
commenting on exactly that of like, these models don't actually understand the world. They are just connecting dots in a very like robotic way. And it's amazing technology. Right. They're not like sentient. Yeah. They're not. I mean, sentient is a, is a complicated word, but I think what and I, I should cite this author. I'll, well, I'll there was that guy at Google got fired because he was like, the AI is sentient. And they were like, well, no. yeah, I mean, that's a different, but the, 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 I think it was an ethicist or a philosopher was pointing out like, Hey, mid journey, please uh, draw a human and the, the and make the things that hold things purple and the algorithm did not understand that the part that holds things is hands like it didn't truly comprehend the world to know what the person was asking of it so it's like it was like a google search of like you have to type in a very specific phrase in order to get what you want because a search engine doesn't like think it's just connecting dots. I'm sorry that's a very long silly question but like where are we with that? The example that you gave of coloring, you know, the hands uh, or the, the things that carry the way I would describe that as inference, right? Can the model infer that this is what the prompt refers to as hands even though maybe the head could carry things or the heart or the back or something as well. Ooh. I like that you threw the right. heart in there. Nice right. work, I mean, sir. This is, there, but that's, <laughs> there's humanity in there that we're, we're not quite there yet with machines. In fact, per, perhaps very far away. And it, I, I don't know. Oh, man, it's just interesting how it's changed the whole world and is so far away. Like yesterday, I asked my Google Home how long it would take me to get somewhere. And it said, you are 10 minutes from home. I was like, I am at home right now, sir. <laughs> okay, please continue with your answer. I actually don't think it's the most interesting or maybe relevant question whether or not the inference is happening because I, there are counterexamples, say, in language models where you could say actually inference is happening. The question to my mind is where does that inference live? So, for example, with a language model that is potentially able to infer things like this, is that understanding in the model? Is it in the computer? Is it in the language that the computer was trained on? Is it in my perception of the language that the computer was trained on or in my perception of what the computer is saying? Essentially, what I'm trying to point out is that when we make meaning out of things, we never make it in a vacuum. I'm always constructing meaning out of collective experiences, out of my past experiences with other people, with other non-humans. I, I do think these systems probably do infer and definitely will infer but where, where that comes from, I think, is the most interesting question. And in my experience with writing, the exploration of language with these tools really revealed to me that language is never just something that one person has. It's never in isolation. And the way that we construct meaning out of language happens between entities. I do think what it's pointing to is very interesting. And maybe one of the more profound aspects of AI is that it shows us that what we think belongs to us might be a property of more than just us. It might be a property of language. It might be a property of the world itself. There is, it sounds like there's a, there's a Turing test analogy in here of like, if the computer can convince us that it's thinking, even if it's not, then it passes. If we're making meaning from its inference, even if it's not quote unquote, truly inferring, then it's real to us. Well, by that logic, the Google AI did become sentient. <laughs> <laughs> That's not... <laughs>
<laughs> well, I it's, mean, a, I mean, it's a good question, open though, because yeah. how long does it need to be sentient for? Right. How you know at what is the what is the container? I think the thing is when we bring these questions of sentience or consciousness, whatever these kind of hard to define terms, when we bring these questions into it, we don't have a clear language about the terms that we're using, and we also don't we assume a lot about the container. I think one thing we're that's definitely influencing this is that we're just talking to things on a screen. You know, there's no agency for these systems to interact in the world. I think if if there was a physical robot that had some AI capability and could manipulate reality and was set out into the world to do that, it might start to look like a really different thing. But right now we're just kind of talking to things that are on a screen and don't have a lot of agency or a lot of capacity to act beyond in response to us. So everything that's coming out of these is always a response to something a human put in. And there's already always a loop happening, a feedback loop between the human and the system, creating meaning, creating language, creating images together. So we can't ever pull ourselves fully out of it. So we're lending a certain amount of sentience to the system by participating with it. I like that. Sorry, there's just so much to digest. I'm like, I know. (laughs) It's like, it's us that makes the computer feel. Right, right. And then now I'm going back. Well, it's like, well, if if we're interacting with these systems in a virtual space, like a a 3D VR space or something, then it doesn't need to walk around as a robot. It can manipulate that virtual reality that we might inhabit. But then to your point, Kay, like, but we created that virtual reality. So it's just responding to other things that humans made. It's not out in the physical plane that we don't control. I don't know. This is this is great. In a sense, we're the vehicle for those systems to have agency, right? Like we give them prompts, we give them questions, we ask them to do certain things, but then we absorb the response and act having absorbed that response. So we're we can be manipulated by those systems and we can act maybe on their behalf. And this is I've often thought about this in terms of possession, right? We have to possess the system. We have to inhabit it and bring it to life, so to speak. But then once we've done that, we start to become changed by it. And it starts to act through us in a certain way. It's funny to think of having a mutual relationship with AI, but I guess that's like definitely the point, right? (laughs) At the creative level, I think it is. The political question is, what does that relationship look like in terms of power, in terms of how the things are made, in terms of the distribution of this socio-technical system in terms of its regulation. I think that's where it gets, it goes beyond the individual. It goes beyond our personal response to it and gets into a collective question. Okay. And on that note, what do you think are the different collective questions that we should be asking about this technology? We've talked a lot about this, you know, what words are or are not allowed. Um, Should the, you know, should the systems essentially they're self-regulating at this point, right? But, you know, the example of social media was brought up and there's been this constant back and forth around who's able to uh, moderate social media, who's able to regulate it. And we haven't seen an effective response from government, really. We're trusting that these corporations can regulate themselves, regulate their own products and their effects. Um, And I think we're probably going to see a similar thing happen with AI, to be totally honest. I, you know, I, I don't really trust the government to, well, let's just say that the government hasn't proven itself able to deeply comprehend these technical systems and regulate them. So we're kind of left with a gap here of there not being the conventional means of governance or regulation. Um, and, you know, it forces us into this situation where the systems have to regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think we can trust systems to regulate themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, so, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be uh, pessimistic or kind of dark about it, but this is kind of the bind we're in right now. Mm -hmm. People are coming up with, you know, people are looking at Web3 as a way to create forms of governance that can be collective, that could influence the things that get made, but that hasn't really borne out yet. Do you think that it will? Oh, God, that's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> I have my doubts. I definitely have my doubts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Kay, as we look towards this new AI art frontier, what do you think people should be doing to engage with this new sort of medium and this new way to create? I think artists should do what they've maybe always done, which is to try to break the new tool. That's when it gets really interesting <laughs> when they push it beyond what it's designed to do. That's what excites me. I love that answer. Okay. Sorry. Now I want to keep going on that. So what do you, what do you envision would be pushing and breaking this tool? First thing would be to make something that has never been seen before, or to make something that the designers of the system didn't intend for it to do. One of the things that we're seeing with these tools is an obsession with trying to understand what's going on inside them. And there are people that have, you know, said they found proof, they believe that, that Dali has its own language and it's generating these certain words uh, that they think correspond to certain kinds of images. Uh, there are other people that, you know, will go so far as to say that they think a demon lives inside of Mid Journey. And if you ask these certain prompts, you'll see it. Fuck. God damn it. You know, this, we didn't even talk about this, but like, Religious cults are going to form around these platforms, aren't they? God damn. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of already happening. Um, so these are places where I think it gets really interesting, where it's not just about the picture that comes out, but it's about how you narrate it or what you can find in there. Uh, to me, these things, this latent space inside of neural nets is kind of this zone where we have no idea what's going on and it's very hard to know what's going on. And that's what artistic exploration can show us is what's happening inside this high dimensional space. Oh my gosh. Wait, what are the other ways that people are already bringing religion into this? Well, the example of Blake Lemoyne, who was uh, fired from Google related, it, I think he is also a Discordian priest. What is that? <laughs> Discordianism is, I don't know a lot about it, but it's a religion that was formed from the seventies, I believe as a spoof religion, mm. a sort of meta absurdist religion that actually has all the structures of a normal religion. So clearly there's this kind of creative play with belief is already happening among people like him. Even you could say the singularitarians, right? The Kurzweil type people, even the Nick Bostrom people that believe in, or these so-called long-termists that believe, you know, in these future AIs that we need to either prevent or create. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about AI that really reflects back our religious conditioning or belief mm -hmm. itself. Um, just the idea of a superhuman power and all the ways that we try to relate to it generally come from the past. They come from it, previous examples of how to relate to a superpower. These are also things that can be designed. And the thing about Silicon Valley is that it's very materialist and it's very anti-religion. So those questions are really oftentimes left off the table or left to people that don't have a lot of understanding of how religious psychology works or how previous belief systems work or how humans have framed superhuman powers in the past. It's clearly something that's happening and something that 
is evoked by our experience with these tools. Wow. Well, you've given us 4,000 <laughs> things to think about. <laughs> so thank you for my dreams and my nightmares. Um, and lots of names to Google. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But thank you so much for joining us and lending your time and expertise to this subject. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great to talk to you about it. Thank you. Wow, I really enjoyed that. And I think that Kay would be a really excellent, you know, like dinner party guest or do really well at a Parisian style salon. Yeah, yeah. Or a podcast. I think they'd probably do really well on a podcast. <laughs> okay, right. So, you know, we'll have to see. Viewer, yeah. viewers, TBD. viewers TBD. we don't have viewers. <laughs> Listeners, let us know. <laughs> uh, super quick before we get out of here, uh, I wanted to just cite Gary Marcus. I mentioned the sort of like, uh, he's a scientist and author of uh, books called like Rebooting AI or Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. And he had blogged about, do these algorithms have inference, as Kay was saying, or are they just sort of, you know, algorithmically connecting dots? And, and he was the one who asked like about the purple hands and whether they the bots could figure that out. So I, we, we mentioned that and it became a point of conversation in the interview. And I wanted to just make sure we were citing that uh, author. Thank you very much. So nice. Credit where credit is due. I love it. Well, friends, there was a lot to learn and listen to in this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we will give you ways to let us know how much you enjoyed it. Allie, go for it. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Before you do, what's coming out? You know, we, we, we talked to Adam, who was like very uh, bullish and enthusiastic. And we talked to Kay, who was like, also excited, but also cautious. What's your sort of fear factor on a, on, on zero from zero to 100, 100's like, I'm all in, I'm becoming an AI artist. And zero is like, pump the brakes. It's going to kill us all. Where are you right now? Zero to 100. I'm a 50. Yeah. Solid 50. Oh, right. Solid right down the middle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait um, and see. I, I, my, my hesitation is always small and my trepidation is large. If, if, if that makes any sense. I'm always willing to just jump right into something, uh -huh. but thinking like, well, I'm just one person. So however I interact with it, it's going to be fine. But if people who are more important than me are jumping in in the same way that I am, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so put, put a number on it. Does that, or is this like a whiplash of like, depending on where, where you are in your day? You're jumping well, in or you're you're running away. Yeah. Well, if I'm playing with it, I have no trepidation. I'm like mm -hmm. at a one. I'm not afraid at all. And if other people are playing with it, I'm at a hundred. I'm like, yikes, <laughs> this is going to be used against us very soon. Right, right. It's hard not to be worried. Yeah. But I think I, whenever there's new stuff, you're almost always wrong when you say it's going to, it's going to ruin everything. It's so, it's so bad. It's so whatever, you know, you're almost always wrong. And what I'm struggling with is like, I still think social media and the web and the internet is a net positive for humanity. I mean, we, we're having protests in Iran today that are not possible without the internet. You know what I mean? So like, are we living in a tiny sliver of time that we have to reckon with? And then in a hundred years, we'll be like, whoa, that was from rough times, but we figured it out. Or is it really, really different than it ever was before, you know, um, existentially? And I, depending on which day it is, I don't know which, which side of that answer I fall on. So uh, I'm similarly with Allie of like, we don't know yet. <laughs> we don't know and we have to be careful. Yeah. Well, um, this, 
you know, we had two interviews this episode, so we're going to let you all go, but we would love to continue the conversation and hear your thoughts on all of this because it's so wild, wild west, as we've said before. Um, so please pop into our Discord, discord.gg slash 2G1P. And share your mid-journey and Dolly paintings oh if you're using them. Put them in the, you know, <laughs> Ooh, come on, pop them in yes, there. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You can also catch us on social media. I'm at Allie underscore Goldie, A-L-L-I underscore G-O-L-D-I across platforms. I'm at the Lindsay Life, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y across all platforms. And you can also leave us a voicemail. That number is... 347-871-6548. That number again, 347-871-6LIT. You can email us at 2G1podcast at gmail.com. You can pop on over to Facebook, Two Girls, One Podcast, patreon.com slash 2G1P. No amount is too small. Um, it would be great if you could contribute, you know, before our voices are replaced with AI. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been thinking about it. There are tools that are shockingly good at generating voices. It's not really, I mean, I guess there's AI involved, but I re was recently listening, I was working, I'm working with another show and we were talking to, I think it was Descript and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have like, oh, if someone messed up a date in your podcast or, or a phrase and you don't have time to re-record, you can just, here it is, boop, boop, boop. And it sounded mm -hmm. exactly like the person. I was like, oh, how much audio did you have to ingest to like replicate your host's voice? He was like, ah, like 20 minutes. I'm like, holy shit. I could type mm -hmm. this show into a Word doc and generate it mm -hmm. whenever I want, if I really wanted to do that like we're yeah. there we're here no well it's been really nice <laughs> listeners what i'm saying um, is you're fired and uh, I, i'll see you later how do you know that this was isn't an ai right now we don't an no -L -L -I -O. it's true oh, another oh. terrible joke <laughs> please come back next week despite right. that last joke <laughs> we love and appreciate you all thank you so much heart your faces bye bye one podcast is hosted by Allison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford, then fed through an algorithm to automatically remove all the Burning Man references, I mean produced by Matt Silverman in New York City. This episode was edited by Avital Ayler. Production assistance is provided by the Podglomerate. This show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in-depth reporting about life on the internet. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.